Hey, it's fun to be here. Nice to have you all back. We had a great time. We were at 3,600 miles in three weeks, and, and it was too short. We wanted to do more, but uh, it was a lot, a lot of fun. It was great to be out. We had a good time as a family. We travel well. I don't know how you all... My memories of a kid growing up, going on road trips, was, it was hell. All right? I don't know about you guys, but we were in a, me and two brothers in the back of a station wagon, and it was all to keep from killing each other, and my dad killing us. And uh, my poor kids, they don't have that experience. They just, you know, they, they get along, and we get along, and the trips are great. And, you know, it's a shame. They've missed out on the real fun of growing up, which is uh, miserable road trips. We had a good time, and we're back, and we've been excited about getting into Jonah. We'll uh, start here in a second with prayer, as always, and get into the Word. I don't know how many of you have actually gone into the book and started studying it on your own. It's, it's not hard to do. I'll, I'll tell you up front, it's only 48 verses, the whole book, which, to give you a comparison, there were some chapters in Luke that were 70 or 80 verses all by themselves. So, uh, you know, you'd think this shouldn't be a big task. In fact, when I first started, I thought, how am I going to stretch this to last eight weeks? And, of course, those of you who know me better are already shaking your heads, thinking... Yeah, right. Well, after some extended time studying and, and reading through the book multiple times, and, and the more I began to see what God's saying in that book, to me anyway, uh, you know, the, the opposite became my thought. How am I going to finish this in eight weeks? So uh, we'll get right to it. Let's uh, bow our heads in prayer, thanking the Lord for our time tonight in the, the Word. Dear Heavenly Father, thank You so much, Father, that we are back here tonight. Father, it is a, uh, a wonderful blessing that you have uh, given us this opportunity in this building on this night to be gathered. Uh, there's so much love in the room, Father. The Holy Spirit is clearly at work uh, bringing us together as only He can in the body of Christ. And in, in the course of this time, Father, as we enjoy each, enjoy each other's company and as we in, uh, enjoy the fellowship in the Word, we just want to give you glory, Father. We want to give you thanks and praise. And we want to be mindful, Father, that You and You alone have made this possible. And, and by Your Son, Father, and by His sacrifice, we can be in this moment. That we can be a part of the family of God. That we can be uh, indwelt by the Holy Spirit and taught by Him on those things we'll see tonight in the Word. That we can know love, Father, in its truest sense and express it to one another. And Father, so many of these things we take for granted. Lord, thank You so much for that opportunity here tonight. Father, I thank You as well for the kind and diligent uh, service and dedication, Father, of so many, not just to attend and to uh, lend their, their own presence and their own uh, knowledge and ideas to this study and to, and to the uh, fellowship that takes place around it, but also, Father, to those who've served to make tonight possible in all the many details. Thank you, Father, for that gift. And as we open your word tonight, Lord, we start a new study. We're excited to, to hear from you through your word. And we bring our open minds, our open hearts, we bring a, a seriousness of purpose, and we pray, Father, you'd make the most of those, of those small efforts on our part. Uh, help us walk away, Father, with just a renewed and fresh understanding of a story we may have already encountered in the past. But uh, we know, Father, you can do a great work through your living word, and we look forward to it tonight. We pray this uh, request and ask for this blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome. For, for any of those who don't know me or uh, have not met me yet, my name is Stephen Armstrong. I attend here at Wayside, and uh, this is an eight-week study through the book of Jonah. If you have your Bibles, as I hope you do, let's open up to the book of Jonah. It's a minor prophet. You'll find Jonah quite near the end of the Old Testament. As you get into the last two or three minor prophets, he's, uh, he's there. If you turn quick, you'll miss him because it's a very short book. When we open our Bibles to studies of great men, stories of great men, stories of great women of faith, 
we expect to find evidence of that faith in their obedience. In their obedience to God and in their obedience to their calling. But today, as we start the study of Jonah, we're going to find quite the opposite. This is a unique story in all of the Bible. We're going to find here a story of faith, yes, but of disobedience in that faith. A story where the victim is guilty of the crime and where the hero is a fish and where the moral of the story is to be less like God's man and more like the villain's. It's an interesting, paradoxical sort of presentation. And it's familiar, the book of Jonah is familiar to probably every Christian who spent any time in church or Sunday school for that matter, but usually only in a passing way. We know the name. We know there's a great fish somewhere in the story. We know he spent some time intimately with that fish. But beyond that, most Christians couldn't articulate clearly why Jonah was in the fish or even why the book is in the Bible. And in that, the opportunity to study the Bible is clearly before us, to understand those things, among other things. In fact, even though it's a historical account, and it is history, we'll talk a little about that tonight, the story, in the way it's told in Scripture, is actually structured more like a long parable, a 48-verse parable, to be exact. And the story packs so much wisdom in just four short chapters that the action is going to begin immediately in verse 1, as the Lord brings Jonah a new mission. And that's where we start tonight, of course, verse 1 of chapter 1 in Jonah. So open your Bibles with me. Let's read the first few verses as we begin our study. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of, Am- of Amittai. Amittai, I always want to say Amittai, but it's Amittai. I don't know why that's on my mind, but you can draw your own conclusions. <laughs> I was in Florida for two weeks, by the way. <laughs> this is a great way to start a study, isn't it? This is... Uh... <laughs> Moving right along, verse 2. The Lord says to Noah, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah is one of the last prophets given to the northern kingdom. Remember, at the time Jonah is alive, the nation of Israel has split. It is no longer just a single nation as it existed under David and under Solomon. It's now become a split kingdom with a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. He was one of the prophets given to the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom existed until about 722 when the exile into Assyria occurred. So the northern kingdom is destined to end up in exile, under captivity, by the hand of the Assyrians. And Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. Jonah, as he lived in that day, lived in the northern part of what is present-day Israel in a place called Galilee. Remember that, of course. And he prophesied under the king uh, Jeroboam II, who was an evil king, another in a long line of evil kings, as you may know from the story of the northern kingdom. He's described, as we open these verses here, as the son of Amittaiah. And his name, the father's name there, means truthful. And beyond that, it's a man we know very little about. But the fact that his father's name is mentioned here is actually quite important for one reason alone. It adds weight to the view that the story of Jonah is literal, historical fact. You know, we live in a a relativistic, and I would argue a cynical time, and that carries over into the culture around the church, because there are a lot of Christians today, and maybe not in this room, I hope, but... There are Christians who will dismiss as fiction 
any part of the Bible that presents the supernatural workings of God. And Jonah is sort of a classic example of that. You could include, for example, stories of Adam and Eve and of Noah and of other places in the Bible, but Jonah seems to fit into this category of fictionalized morals or parables as many would see the Old Testament. And that kind of cynicism has established itself really in many of today's seminaries as well as in many of today's churches. And so out of this movement, there has been a conclusion drawn, and it's carried over into many teachings you'll hear, that says Jonah was not historical fact, that it was just an allegory, that it's a story that's told ultimately as a metaphor with some kind of moral at the end. You'll hear that taught, unfortunately, today in many places. And as I said, Jonah's just one of the casualties of this view, and there are others. Prior to the rise of biblical criticism, which is the term you use for this cynicism, biblical criticism, this, this art of learning how to tear down the Scripture. What an interesting discipline that is. Prior to the rise of biblical criticism, the story of Jonah was always considered to be literal historical fact, both by the early church as well as by Jewish authorities, by the Jewish authorities of antiquity, going through the, old, the days of the Old Testament. No one questioned whether Jonah was truly Jonah or whether the events really happened. In fact, Jesus himself makes reference to Jonah, if you may already know from reading your gospel accounts. We studied it here in Luke chapter 11. In Luke chapter 11, uh, Jesus makes a comparison from Jonah to himself, and he does it in such a way that tells us he believes Jonah, the story of Jonah, was literal historical fact. To think of it as merely a metaphor makes what Jesus said in Luke chapter 11 nonsensical. So if you are prepared to believe that Jonah is nothing more than a metaphor, nothing more than a fable, then you have to ask yourself why you follow a man who claimed to be God while at the same time believing this story to be literal fact. I would ask you to consider why it is you follow him at all. We also should note, therefore, that because the Father is named here as a means of helping describe who this Jonah was, it adds weight to the thought that the author viewed this story as literal fact. We ought to use it as another guide in that respect. Nineveh. Nineveh, as I said, was the capital of Assyria. It occupied about 1,800 acres in its day in the, around the eastern banks of the Tigris River, the, the land we typically call Mesopotamia. In, in modern terms, this would place the town immediately opposite modern-day uh, Mosul in, in Iraq. You heard of Mosul or Mosul, the town that often has a lot of disturbances associated with it now in Iraq. That's present-day Nineveh, if you want to kind of localize it to somewhere on your map. The history of Nineveh goes back long before the flood of Noah. It's one of the most ancient cities in all of humanity. It was established by Nimrod, that name ring any bells, out of Genesis. He established that town as well as, for example, Babel. So this is how ancient that city is, one of the very first settlements of, of mankind in ancient times. The city was surrounded by a wall, a big wall for protection. Some say that wall was as high as 100 feet high and 50 feet thick, surrounding 1,800 acres. One stretch of the wall we know ran for about seven and a half miles and had 15 gates in it. This town is, is one, of the, you know, one of the wonders of the world if it were still around today. And living inside and perhaps around the outside of that city was about 600,000 people by what we can establish today. That made it one of the largest cities in all the ancient world. The people of Assyria were long enemies of the nation of Israel. And you only have to realize the fact that they ended up being the, the nation that took Israel captive to appreciate just how serious the rivalry, how serious the hatred was between these two nations. 
So at the time Jonah is being sent to Nineveh, I'm giving you some of this background because I, I have to make sure you understand the times and the circumstances in which this order, this, this command is given to Jonah. At the time Jonah is given this command, Nineveh, which we can estimate at about 780 B.C., so only about 60 years before the captivity happened, the Assyrian na- nation was actually at one of its weakest points. It's actually at a point when it's weakest in its political power. It had given way to some enemies in the north that had come down and, and raided the, the city and raided the nation and reduced its borders to barely 100 miles north of the capital city. So it was a, a country under siege, a country that felt some vulnerability, a country that was seeing a weak time in its history, relatively speaking. It wasn't until new kings came on power about 745 B.C. that you saw a return to a rise in power, ultimately culminating with their ability to come in and attack and take over the nation of Israel in 722 B.C. Its history also included a long history of idol worship. You only have to go back to its foundations to understand that. Nimrod was the man who established Babel, which was so great in its um, desire to contend with God that God had to come down and confuse the language in order to break up the people. Well, Nimrod was part of that, and he established Nineveh under a similar base, on a similar basis. Jonah hears, therefore, from God that he should rise and he should go cry, we're told, against Nineveh because of its wickedness. Now, this is the pattern God has with all his prophets. I don't want you to think that Jonah got some special treatment here. Like Isaiah, who, was told, who when he heard God's command, told God, here I am, send me, when he was told to go to the rebellious southern kingdom and preach to them. Or like Ezekiel, who heard God say in Ezekiel 2, verse 4, I am sending you to them who are stubborn and obstinate children, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. And as for them, whether they listen or not, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. That's what Ezekiel was told to look forward to. Didn't give him a lot of prospect for success in that mission either, did he? And those were to God's own people. Both Ezekiel and Isaiah were sent within the nation. Jonah's being sent outside the nation, but it's not unusual to be sent somewhere to a people who really don't want to hear you. That's not unprecedented. It's hardly the case that Jonah had something unique there. What is unique, though, in the way he was called, it's the only time in all of the Old Testament that a prophet was sent specifically to a Gentile nation with a call of repentance. No other prophet had that mission in all of the nation of Israel. Never before had God taken note of a nation of Gentiles with a cry of mercy for repentance. You might see individual Gentiles saved. You never saw a whole nation focused like this. This was totally unique. Why did God want Jonah to go to Nineveh? Why did God want Jonah to go to Nineveh? The words there for cry out, go, out, go to Nineveh and cry out against them, the words there in the Hebrew, ka'ar, Q-A-R-A, ka'ar al, they have a wide range of meanings, but in the context of these verses, they give you this connotation of for the purpose of mercy. In other words, cry out against them, declare their wickedness, make known their wickedness, but so that they would recognize it and repent is sort of implied in the statement. Not cry out strictly for the purpose of saying you're about to be destroyed, have a nice day. But rather, if you don't repent, you're going to be destroyed. That's the implicit purpose of the cry. So there's a distinct sense here of proclaiming with an expectation of a positive outcome. Now, we're going to look later in this study at the prophetic picture of Jonah's call as we reach the fourth chapter. Because this book, as I said, is like a parable where the culmination, the point of this, comes in the fourth chapter. But for now, it's just simple to understand that God desired to show mercy on the city of Nineveh. And he selected Jonah as his instrument to accomplish that purpose. Now, in response to that mission, here we are, two verses into the book, we've already got his purpose and his calling 
We're already at that point in the story. Then in verse 3, the bizarre thing begins to happen. In response to the call, Jonah does something completely bizarre. Instead of jumping up and obeying God, he jumps up and promptly disobeys God. Immediately upon hearing God's instruction, we're told he leaves for Joppa to find a ship headed to Tarshish. Now, to fully appreciate what he just did, you need a map. If you have one, if you have access to one, or if you don't, go back and look at one. If you placed where he lives now, and I said earlier that he lived in Galilee. To be specific, he lived in a place called gath Hefer, which is a small town in the region of the Galilee. If you start with Jonah in his hometown at the point he receives the call, gath Hefer, and you look to the east in Mesopotamia, where the city of Nineveh is on your map, and then look to the west from that town where the city of Joppa is, and you drew a straight line from Nineveh to Joppa, you almost perfectly intersect his hometown in the Galilee. In other words, he went 180 degrees away from the place he was being sent to. Not just a different direction, the opposite direction. And more than that, when he gets to this place that's 180 degrees away, he looks for a boat headed to Tarshish. Now, Tarshish is the ancient word used for a number of different places in the ancient world. It's not just one city, but it's most commonly associated with Spain. So, for the most part, it's the sensible assumption to make here that he's going to Spain. Now, in the day of Jonah, 780 B.C., give or take, Spain was about 2,400 miles away from Joppa. I mean, it still is today, I guess. That's a stupid thing to say, but it's 2,400 miles away. I was just seeing if anybody was paying attention. Apparently not. It's 2,400 miles away, but in that day, Spain represented about the farthest place on the planet anyone would travel. I mean, we know the Vikings were alive and well and were moving around the globe, but in the case of those who lived in Palestine, they didn't know of anywhere you could go further than Tarshish. So it wasn't just enough that he went in the opposite direction. He went further than that. He went to the farthest reaches of the earth from where he was being asked to go by God. So why did Jonah try to place himself as far from Nineveh as he could? It seems bizarre for a man called by God as a prophet. If Jonah simply didn't want to obey God, if his whole point was, no, God, I'm not going to go to Nineveh, forget it. He didn't have to travel to Joppa. He didn't have to travel to Tarshish, right? He could have just stayed where he was. Where he was in the Galilee is already several hundred miles away from Nineveh. So if his purpose was merely to not do what God asked him to do, then there's really no reason for him to embark on this kind of a trip. And in fact, if his other concern might have been he didn't want to make a long travel, well then that can't be explained. That can't explain his, his response because he ended up making a very long travel, even longer than the one he was asked to make. So that can't be what's holding him back. So why take off? Why go to so much effort to avoid obeying what God has called him to do and to do it in such a unique way? Verse 3 tells you why. It was to leave the presence of the Lord. To leave the presence of the Lord. This term is a common one in Scripture. You'll find it mentioned over and over again. It refers to God's localized presence in the temple, for example, or elsewhere, but principally in the nation of Israel. To a Jew living in that day, the Lord inhabited the land of His people. He inhabited the temple specifically. So, when you look at this phrase, for example, you'll find it elsewhere in Scripture. It's used when Adam and women hide from God in the garden. You remember the scene in chapter 3? So you have God coming into the garden and Adam hiding with woman because of the sin in the garden. 
They're hiding, we're told, from the presence of the Lord. It's the same idea. Or when Cain was banished following the murder of Abel, he's banished from the presence of the Lord, we're told. We're told that at Mount Horeb, it quaked because of the presence of the Lord. That's how that term is often used. I think in this case, what Jonah's doing is he's leaving the place that he most closely associates with God's presence. It's likely the place that he heard from God. As a prophet living in the land, he heard from God while he was in the land. So, to his way of thinking, I'm not just disobeying God, I'm leaving God. I'm running away from God himself, not merely from the command to go to Nineveh. Now, this does not mean that Jonah somehow thought he could escape God's omnipresence. I don't want you to get the impression that he was so stupid or naive that he felt you could run far enough that God couldn't find him or that God wouldn't know where he is. Uh, Just like any prophet, he would have understood that God was always aware of his thoughts, always aware of his actions, always knew where he was. So there are really three reasons why he ran from God's presence, none of which include because he thought God wouldn't know where he was. That wasn't his point. They're different than that. The first reason is, I believe, he assumed that if he went far enough away from where he was, God would have no choice but to do this work through another man. It's an issue of availability. That if Jonah wasn't available, if he wasn't in the region, if he wasn't anywhere near Nineveh, if he was at the farthest reaches of the earth, God would have no choice but to get this done another way. It's a disobedience calculated to force God's hand into accomplishing his purpose through a different means because Jonah wasn't about to be a part of this plan. Secondly, I think he's running so that he can run down the clock. You know, in the football terminology, if it's near the end of the game and you've got a good lead, the last thing you want to do is see that clock stop. So you start running it down because when the game's over, the game's over. There's no way for them to extend the game if the clock has run out. In this case, and you're going to learn this as we look at chapter 3, Jonah knew that what God told him to proclaim was that unless the Ninevites repented, their city would be destroyed in 40 days. Now, we haven't heard that detail yet in the verses we've read. As I said, when we get into chapter 3, we're going to see, by virtue of what he does announce, that he had been told specifically by God that there would be judgment to be received in 40 days. So what's he doing? He's running out the clock. He wants to see the city destroyed. He certainly doesn't want to be a part of any solution that would bring the city into repentance because of their long-standing hatred of the Jews and the Jews' corresponding long-standing hatred of the Ninevites. So he's determined to get so far away that even if God were to bring him back, by the time it happens, the clock's run out. Now, you could argue that he's presuming that the clock's already started, but whatever, he's trying to make this as difficult as he can. Then the final reason, I think, is one we all share with Jonah. And this is a little bit more... Difficult. The natural thing for any of us to do when we decide to disobey God's direction is to instinctively run from his presence. Now, I don't mean to imply any of us have disobeyed God. I realize that's not something we share with Jonah. But should it be the case that any of us should ever find ourselves disobeying God's clear direction in our lives, it's naturally instinctive. It is perfectly consistent with what Jonah did here for us to flee from whatever the presence of the Lord means, whatever, however it's manifested in our particular life. Let me give you some examples. You know, God speaks to us like He does Jonah, in the sense that He can place on our hearts, on our, on our minds, on our hearts, an impression or a distinct calling or a distinct uh, uh, direction of some kind that we don't have any mistake about, that we know is God in some way talking to us about what we are to do. Maybe it comes through the counsel of a godly friend or a pastor. Maybe it comes through clear teaching of Scripture as revealed to us by the Holy Spirit, or by prayer, or by some other means. But it's clear enough, whatever way it came. 
And like Jonah, we clearly understand it, but we don't like it. It's not what we want. It's certainly not what we had hoped for. And it's not something we're prepared to accept. So when we reach that point in our life and we decide we're going to turn our own way and make our own path, despite what God has made clear is the path, then in that kind of disobedience, in that moment of rejecting God's desires and replacing them with our own, it's, and by the way, it's a unique kind of disobedience, unique to a child of God. It's fundamentally different than the kind of disobedience that marks an unbeliever's life where there is no clear insight from God, there is no relationship in the first place, it is merely the flesh leading in every moment, in every way. This is different. This is a believer. This is, one, this is someone who knows God and knows what God expects and has been receiving the revelation of God in their own life and yet still chooses to not listen. That's a unique kind of disobedience, the sin of rebellion, as you might put it. When that happens, we leave God's presence. And by that I mean this. For Jonah, it meant fleeing to Tarshish. For us, though, it can come perhaps in the way we might avoid gathering with believers in fellowship. We might put away that Bible that we've been reading that's been telling us things we don't like so much. Or you know, fall out of a Bible study or out of a home group or out of some other opportunity for God to speak to us that up till that point has been directing us, but now that direction is no longer something we welcome. So what we do is we flee from further opportunity to hear from God or to experience his direction in the way we've been experiencing it. Because we don't like to be reminded we're not doing what he wants. Because the conviction of the Holy Spirit continues to weigh on us. That's, you, you will either obey God, or the conviction that comes with disobedience will drive you away from that experience with him. I don't know of anyone who can sit there in that experience on a routine basis, knowing they should be doing differently, convicted of their disobedience, and yet sitting still to hear that on a regular basis. I don't know anyone who will do that. They'll either flee the opportunity to hear it, or they'll finally comply. And that's the nature of conviction. I mean, that's its purpose in our life, is to conform us to the likeness of Christ. Sin, we know, separates us from God. As an, as an unbeliever, it separates us in stark, eternal terms. But as a believer, it separates us in the sense that it breaks fellowship. You may have heard that before, that when we sin, it's a break in fellowship. But I want you to understand what that word means, because in some cases, people misunderstand it. They think it means in the sense of I'm now in jeopardy with my relationship. I now have some concern over whether or not I'm saved. That would be sort of its most extreme form. That's not what a break in fellowship means. It's in the sense of how I just described it. The opportunity, the benefit of hearing and obeying and fellowshipping with God and with one another is lost because of a disobedience in our life that forces us, not God away, but us away from that interaction. It puts us in a position where we don't feel comfortable in the fellowship. Not because God himself withdraws. And in fact, if you learn anything from the story of Jonah, God not only does not withdraw, he pursues. It's about our unwillingness to own up to the disobedience so that we can enjoy that fellowship and return to it. We compound our own mistakes, by the way, when we do what Jonah did here. When we run. Because unless we repent and turn back to God, we're going to experience a diminished willingness over time to participate in worship, to participate in the fellowship of believers, to participate in prayer or study in any of the forms it takes. And as a result, our flesh now has greater opportunity to command our lives. It's a downward spiral that you'll see in oftentimes, unfortunately, in many Christians' lives, where something gets them off track and then they stay there for so long that their life just goes downhill in their walk. And it's a very common pattern, unfortunately. It's no coincidence that many people drift away at times of crisis 
brought about because of their own disobedient choices, and then never quite find their way back. But we still haven't addressed the fundamental question here. Why is Jonah so determined not to obey God in this particular way? Well, if you read to the end of the story, then you're going to know that what Jonah's worried about is well-founded. What Jonah's worried about, in simple terms, is that if he does what God wants, if he goes to Nineveh, if he says what God wants to say, the Ninevites will in fact repent. And God, knowing, or Jonah rather, knowing God's character and knowing who he is, is perfectly assured that when that repentance occurs, God will forgive. And when that forgiveness comes, judgment will be avoided. And because judgment will be avoided, the city of Nineveh will go on rather than end. Because what Jonah would love nothing better than to see is the nation come under the same judgment that came for Sodom and Gomorrah. And so his fundamental concern is this, that God is faithful. His fundamental concern is this, God is trusted at his word, and that his word has the effectual power to bring repentance. And his faith has led to his disobedience. His faith in what God will do and can do is so assured in his heart that he's determined to thwart it by his disobedience, because it's not the outcome he wants. Dr. Thomas Constable uses a very powerful analogy here to explain a little bit of what was going through Jonah's mind so that before we come down on this man too harshly, we might be able to sympathize with him at least a little bit. He says, I want you to imagine back in 1944, a Jew living in a Polish concentration camp and that God came to that Jew while he's in those circumstances and instructed him to leave the concentration camp. God is going to open the doors for just long enough that he can walk out on his own. He is to travel to Berlin. And when he reaches Berlin, he is to walk through that city proclaiming that God is prepared to, repent, to show mercy and forgiveness to the German nation if they would repent of their sin against the nation of Israel and against the, uh, the Jewish people. And imagine still that that Jew had 100% confidence that were he to obey that call, it would in fact result in the German people repenting and likewise God relenting. Now, how difficult would it be for that Jew, knowing all of that, to look upon the misery and the death around him in that camp and understand who was responsible for it and knowing how he must have felt, particularly if this man may have lost a daughter or a son or a wife or a father already to the concentration camp. And seeing that and knowing who is to blame for it, knew that he had within his power the ability to walk up and step out of that concentration camp. And by the word given to him through God, he could put an end to the misery of his people, certainly, but it would be with the result that all those responsible would receive God's mercy and be left untouched for their crimes. Could he do that? Could he bring himself to do it? Or instead, when that door opened for just a moment, would he run out it and flee and run away? hoping and praying that God would have no choice but to bring judgment on those people. Maybe with that explanation, you can understand for just a moment why Jonah has the reaction he has. It doesn't remove his selfishness, but perhaps it explains his thinking a little better. So he begins his walk toward Joppa, and he finds his ship, and he boards it. In verse 4, we hear that once he's on this ship and sailing, the Lord hurls a great wind on the sea, and there's a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down, and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. 
we see the Lord at work here. And he brings this mighty wind against this ship, we're told. And we're told the force of this wind is so great that the ship is at the breaking point. I want you to understand what this really means in the language and just in general knowing how shipping worked in that day. These were not the most sturdy of vessels in the day this was written. And in fact, these are probably Phoenician sailors. The Phoenicians of that day were the people who had pretty much commanded the Mediterranean Sea. The Jews were not a seagoing people which you might find interesting considering they bordered the ocean, but they never in their history developed a taste for, for sailing or for going out to sea. The Phoenicians basically controlled the coast, and they were a seafaring people. The greatest danger to a ship under these circumstances is not so much capsizing, although that certainly could happen as well. The real threat was that the keel would snap. Now, if you don't know anything about how ships are built, that one single long sturdy beam that's laid from front to back through the center of the ship on which you then build out the skeleton of the ship, that's called the keel. And it's the, it is basically the backbone of the ship. If that snaps, the rest of the ship goes with it in a heartbeat. It's, it's the one piece that can't break if you hope to save your ship. Well, if the waves are too violent, if they start getting too high, and that ship is cresting over the top of these very high waves, you can reach a point where the end of the boat is sticking way out above, over essentially air, and only the back half of the ship is on the wave because the trough of the wave is so big that the ship is only being held up by, say, half of itself. And all this weight now becomes a lever, becomes a, 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 a torque on the keel. And if there's enough weight in the boat, and if the boat is perched out far enough, it can just snap and fall forward. The front of the boat just snaps at the keel, and the whole thing goes underwater. So when you see them throwing out cargo, there's really two purposes in that. One is to... Uh, lighten the ship so that it will rise higher in the water, but that's not really going to help you very much in strong waves. The real concern is that I lighten the weight so that if it does get out on the edge of one of these waves, there's not a lot of weight in the boat pushing it down and breaking off the end of the ship. So this is how desperate the men are. They're worried that the nature of these waves might break the boat up at any moment. That's what the text is talking about. It's fascinating, though, to watch God in this, in my mind. It was just fascinating as I read through this to look at what God does here in pursuit of Jonah. The Scripture tells us that God brought the storm upon the ship. Now, we know immediately God's the one doing this. I mean, there's no doubt, right? This isn't coincidental. So we know God is the one forcing Jonah's hand here in this particular way. So it has to rise to you, at least in your mind, I hope in my mind it did, why? Why pursue Jonah? God's mission here is not dependent on Jonah. Fundamentally, it's not dependent on Jonah. We know that God could send anyone to, ten, to send this message to, to Tarshish, I mean to Nineveh. For that matter, he doesn't have to send anyone. He could send an angel. He could have a pillar of, of cloud. He could have a burning bush. I mean, he can do it any way he wants. There's nothing about Jonah that makes him the important key figure here for getting the work done that he wants to get done in, in Nineveh. So why not leave Jonah alone? Leave him to his pity party. Let him go in the bottom of a ship to Tarshish. Good riddance. Good luck to you. And send somebody else. Why not do that? And on the other hand, if God wants to bring Jonah to Nineveh, why go about it this way? So question number two is, if he does want Jonah, why go about it this way? I mean, why not just pluck up Jonah and transport him to Nineveh? He can do that. Or better yet, why didn't he just keep him from ever getting on the boat in the first place? Or ever leaving to go to Joppa? In the first place, I mean, there's precedent in Scripture for God barring people from going places He didn't want them to go, or for using a supernatural power to stop them in some respect, right? Why doesn't I mean, why does He give Jonah here just enough rope to hang himself instead of just stopping his travel? Well, the answer is simple, and yet not so simple, as you know me so well. 
The simple answer is this. God is determined to work through Jonah, and God does not change his mind. God has set his mind on Jonah being the mission or the missionary in this case. He has purposed to work through Jonah to bring a message to Nineveh. And it was the purpose God had in calling Jonah as his prophet in the first place that he would be a man who could bring God's message to the people. In other words, Jonah's calling in life was to be a prophet. A prophet's purpose in life is to be God's mouthpiece. And in that calling, he was to be honored, he was going to fulfill God's purpose. That was God's that was God's mind. He had made it. It wasn't going to change. Romans 11:29 puts it this way: For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Because if God had any doubt about whether Jonah was the man for the job, he never would have picked him. It's not like he had any question. It's not like, well, we'll try Jonah, see how it works out. You know, he knew everything he knew before he picked Jonah, and he knew that Jonah was going to be the guy. Jonah's not going to change that. Jonah does not have the power to do that. So when he places a call on a man's life. That call never ends. That's why one of the reasons why churches that have elders, as this church does, will tell you that you're an elder for life. Because if it is true that you are anointed in that role, and we have recognized that anointing, we see God's hand on a man and say, God has evidently gifted you and anointed you to the role of elder. If we recognize it, then it's done. It's not as though God would make you one today and then, oh, sorry, that was a bad call. No more for you. You're out. If he had known that about you, he never would have picked you in the first place. So the calling and the gifts of God are irrevocable. So once we recognize that calling on a man's life, there's no going back because if it is truly God at work, we're in no condition to say it shouldn't be the case that he's an elder. You are, if God says you are, end of story. Now, you may not always serve. You may not always have active service in that role, but you're no less an elder when you're off the elder board than you were when you were on. It's a recognition of God producing the office, not an office we award one man to another. That's not what it means. So similarly, when he was called to be a prophet, hey, Jonah, guess what? You're a prophet. And God is determined to work through him. So return to the details of this scene for me for just a moment here. You've got the ship tossed almost to the point of breaking. You've got men throwing out the cargo. You've got the crew now crying out to their respective gods. And I said already that you know, these are Phoenicians more than likely. They are pagan people. They had pagan gods. Each probably had a different god. There were many pagan gods to the Phoenicians. But these were gods, as you know, existed only in their minds, as all pagan gods are. And in their desperation and in their fear of death, they were left with no hope. And so what they're praying for here, very specifically, is they're praying to a god of their own choosing that that god would have mercy to save them from this outcome, from what they believe is certain death in light of what's going on around them in these waves. And as we apparently find out, at some point, as they're going down into the hold to take up the cargo and bring it to the top and throw it overboard, at one of the times in this process, the captain goes down, he's looking over, and Jonah's asleep. Now, the word here for sleep, in my translation, it says sound asleep. Exactly the same Hebrew word used for when God puts Adam to sleep for his little surgery and takes out the rib. Exactly the same word God uses when he describes how he put Abram to sleep before he initiated the covenant with him in Genesis. It's the kind of sound sleep that is almost supernatural, if you want to think of it that way, although I'm not suggesting God did that here. It's more to communicate how soundly Jonah is sleeping. It's not like he's pretending to sleep. It's not like he's huddled up in the corner and just kind of hoping they don't notice him. He's, he's donked out. He's sawing logs. He's totally asleep. In the midst of a storm so violent that hardened, sea-going men are fearing for their lives. 
So that is an inconceivable moment, right? That's a, this, the captain had to just you know, do a double take on this guy. Uh, it should remind you a little bit of a story we read in the Gospels as we studied Luke chapter 8. I don't know if you remember back that far. But there's a storm on the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus in this boat, and by the way, when we studied that then, we learned the boat he was in was a fairly large boat, more than likely. And that meant he was probably in the lower part of the boat, much like Jonah is here. And he was sound asleep. While likewise, the disciples are up above, pitching out water and praying and wishing that this would stop and wondering if they're going to make it. And then Peter, being Peter, goes into the bottom of the boat and looks at Christ and says, well, aren't you afraid? Don't you recognize the circumstances here? You know, you who can sleep through storms. That's uh, my own wording, but that's kind of the, the way it was, it was pitched to him in that moment. It's just like this. Now, what did we learn when we studied chapter 8 of Luke? We learned that the reason Jesus could be so restful in the midst of such violent circumstances was simply because he knew that it was God's purpose to take them to the other side. Remember when they set out on that trip, he said, let us get in this boat so we could go to the other side. And then he goes down to sleep because Jesus knew it was God's purpose that they would reach the other side. So no matter what happened in the meantime, never changed God's purpose. All that changed was the men's faith in that purpose. See, when they had faith to know God would do what he said he was going to do, there'd be no reason to make much of the circumstances because they clearly aren't more powerful than the God who is elected to put them on the other side. But if you don't have faith in God's word to do what he said he's going to do, then you have every reason to fear your circumstances because who knows what's going to happen. Likewise, Jonah has zero fear. Think about it. What does Jonah know about this living God? And what does he know about why the storm is taking place in the first place? He reasoned at least one of two things was true under the circumstances. Either God was using the storm to force his hand to go to Nineveh to get Jonah to relent and go back to Nineveh, in which case it's obvious that he's not going to kill Jonah with the storm. I mean, if the point of the storm is simply to get him to go to Nineveh, God's not going to kill him. He's not going to, the treatment is not going to kill the patient, right? So there's no reason to fear the storm. He's probably sitting down there going, yeah, if that's the best you got, I'm not going. I don't care how many times you toss me, you know. I'm sleeping through it. Show you. Why fear a storm that he knows fundamentally can't be the one designed to kill him because the point of it is to send him back? Or, on the other hand, maybe the point is to kill him. Maybe God's so mad at him that this is how he's going to exact judgment and bring him to death for his disobedience. That's a win-win too. Because as a man of God, Jonah is perfectly comfortable with the prospect of death. What does death bring a believer? Entrance into the kingdom, into the presence of God. I mean, it's hardly a bad thing. And in fact, as a little side note, as you understand what's going on here, it's a helpful thing to remember that as a Christian, if you're looking at death in fearful terms, you need to, you need to think more about what it means to die. You need to give more attention to Scripture on the matter because death is a freeing of a body of sin. It is the removal of the pain and suffering of this life. It is the entrance into paradise. It is the thing we all hope for. It is the hope that is within us. I'm not saying we go out and jump in front of a moving bus. You know, there's clearly things we're to do in this life that God has called us to do, and we're not to try to do as Jonah did here, basically, and change God's plans for us. But that doesn't change what we look forward to. It doesn't change our attitude toward death. And his attitude here is simply this. You want to kill me? Hey, good. I don't get to go to Nineveh. I win, right? I get what I want. So either you're just trying to force my hand, in which case I have nothing to worry about, or you're going to kill us all, in which case, fine, take me out. It doesn't bother Jonah, evidently, either way, because the man's sound asleep in the midst of this storm. Think about what that tells us about this man's heart. When the sailor, lies, when this sailor, this captain, lays eyes on this inexplicable sight of Jonah lying here asleep in the midst of the storm, he admonishes Jonah. And, and I think you need to read that into the text. You need to read that, that sense of it. 
he admonishes Jonah here for not participating in the crew's efforts to pray for help. And this is a remarkable thing to me. I, I just, it's, it's astounding to me. Because what you have here is you have a man who won't seek God, if not for his own sake, even for those innocents who happen to be on board the ship with him. And he won't even take time to explain to them why the circumstances are the way they are. He is completely oblivious and ambivalent to their needs and circumstances. He is content to sleep his way through a storm that he knows he's responsible for ultimately, while men around him are panicking to the point of fearing for their own lives, and he's not lifting a finger to help them, to alleviate the circumstances, or even explain it to them. It's, it's the height of self-centeredness, beyond anything I could even imagine, frankly, that he'd have zero pity or compassion on those men. And then you have a pagan captain who does not know the living God, who has not been instructed by the Bible or in the sense of knowing God's ordinances in the law or having had the history of the prophets or any of that, has none of that advantage that Jonah does have. A man who is not to blame for the circumstances. I mean, he's an innocent with respect to these circumstances. And he has to order Jonah and remind Jonah, who is the prophet of the living God, of his own obligation to join the crew in prayer for their circumstances. The juxtapositioning here really shows you how bad off Jonah is in the sense of how self-centered and self-focused he is. That the way God would bring him to his senses, even in this small way, is through the words of a pagan man who is ready to pray to any God at all if he can find relief to his circumstances. So he's stubborn. That much we've seen already. And now we're beginning to appreciate that Jonah is selfish, he's uncaring, and it's particularly the case that he's that way against those who are not Jewish. I think it's clear, and you'll see this much more, of course, when we look through the rest of the book. But just from the very fact that he's, a, he's not willing to go to Nineveh and be a participant in the redemption of that Gentile city, now with these Phoenicians, you know, remember, Gentiles were the dogs of the world to the Jew. He is completely and 100% uncaring, unconcerned, and oblivious to their needs or interests, and more than that, determined to thwart God's efforts to show mercy to that group. I mean, I don't want to paint this guy unfairly, but... I don't know how you could overstate it in light of what we've read just in the first six verses. And then the last statement in the verses I read is really, I think, the most memorable statement for our first week of study. The man says, perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. And I take from the tone there a bit of sarcasm. I think there's a sarcastic bent to that. In this sense, I think what the captain is saying to him is, perhaps your God will be concerned about our predicament because obviously you aren't. You know, maybe you've got a God who cares about us because we need help anywhere we can get it, but I can tell you don't care. Maybe you can do us the little favor of waking up long enough to pray to your God for us. I read that into the text. Granted, it's my own interpretation, but I, I sense that in there because I think the captain sees, obviously, by just the way the guy is sleeping, you don't seem to care about anyone but yourself. There are few character flaws that handicap a Christian more in our service and in our usefulness to God than selfishness. Now, perhaps pride would be the only thing I could think of that would exceed selfishness in the sense of how it handicaps us. But selfishness is a close second. When we're selfish in our time, or when we're selfish in our, our service, or when we're ser- selfish in our finances, or when we're selfish in our relationships, and our, our love for one another, when we're selfish in any of those aspects, we become virtually useless to God, except perhaps to be made an example of. When our focus is on ourself, how is it that God can turn us into an instrument for His own glory? 
when it is all about us. You may remember from our teaching back in Luke chapter 8 when we taught the sower and the seed, as Jesus taught that parable. If you remember the parable's point, it was to emphasize the fact that there are Christians in the world who will come into the faith and grow to a new beginning. They will be born again, if you will. But in that new beginning, they never mature past the point of living to themselves, as evidenced by them being represented by a plant with no fruit. You know, the analogy we made, if you remember that teaching, was that a, a farmer no more starts a field of crop with the hope of having a bunch of green leafy plants than God brings men and women up into the faith so that he can have a bunch of Christians living for themselves. The point of the crop is to produce fruit, seed in other words, to replicate, to build more. And likewise, the purpose in bringing you and I to faith is not so that we can feel good about being a member of the family of God. That's a means to an end. The end is so that we can be useful to God in some greater purpose. But when we are so selfish, or as the plant is described in that parable, a plant that's choked off by the cares and distractions and concerns and worries of this world, when that becomes our attention, we cease being outward in our focus and become entirely about self-preservation, just like that plant that's so choked off that the best it can manage is keeping itself alive, much less produce fruit for any greater purpose. I think what we've seen as we start the study of Jonah tonight is a man who epitomizes in his own way, in a, in a Jewish context, the one who has been raised up by God but has never looked beyond what it did for him. And he judges what God calls him to do. His, his rule for when and how to serve always centers on how does it support what I want? How does it serve me? And when it came time to serve a greater good for a purpose he didn't enjoy, to a people he didn't care for, that was going too far. That's where he drew the line. And he runs from God, so much so that God would not have the opportunity to use him. But the gifts and the calling of God are irrevo irrevocable, but keep in mind the blessings that accompany obedience are not. And this man is going to suffer greatly, at least in the short term, for his unwillingness to obey God. I hope, as we've introduced the story tonight and as we close, that if nothing else, I hope I've piqued your interest just a little bit here in not only the meaning of the story of Jonah, but also what we're going to learn about ourselves as we study it in the coming weeks. Because unfortunately, though it would be nice to look at Jonah as somebody unique and afar from us, uh, you know, if I'm thinking about myself anyway, it's not so far from home. Uh, I haven't spent a lot of time in the belly of a fish, but <laughs> don't, don't think I don't deserve it. If you aren't willing to reflect a little bit on your own behavior and your own attitudes about the needs of others, as Jonah here so epitomizes, uh, I think we're going to miss a, the best opportunity we have as we study a book like Jonah. Uh, because ultimately, we're called to a world who, like the Phoenicians, who, like the Ninevites for that matter, they don't know the Lord. And they should be and are the object of our compassion as they are our Lord's. And he calls us to be an instrument to bring them to that knowledge. Let's close tonight. We'll come back in next week in chapter 1, verse 7, finish the chapter. Let's go to prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the, the hard but uh, truthful opening in your word tonight as we go into Jonah. Thank you, Father, that you've... Uh, begun to raise points that I pray will uh, have their good work in our heart. Father, we know that uh, Jonah was a man of God, but he was a man first, and in that, in that flesh, Father, he failed at times, and we follow his story tonight, Lord, mindful of our own. I pray that as we study in the weeks to come, you'll do a great work in our hearts as you did in Jonah's, and that we, Father, would uh, see opportunity to serve you even greater than we may be doing now, that we would have a compassion for others, Father, perhaps more than we do now, and we would understand, Father, that the blessings of obedience can be so short-lived if we are not willing, Father, to listen to your word and heed it. And we pray we would be doing that every day. 
Thank you, Lord, tonight for the attendance and for the attentiveness. I pray that in the weeks to come you grow our bodies as you see fit and bring us all back safely next week. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.